Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Hi there and welcome to Tech Radio, the number one Irish tech podcast bringing you news and tech from around Ireland and across the world. Remember you can hear our show on air with RTE Friday evenings or anytime you like with your favourite podcasting app from Apple, Google or Spotify. We also keep you up to date daily on all things tech with hourly updates and daily newsletters which you can grab for free at techcentral.ie. My name is Dusty Rhodes. This is episode 836 and joining me as always is our editor-in-chief uh, Niall Kitts. Niall was lucky enough to be able to keep an eye on Amazon and their hardware launch late last week. Um, I have caught up with the headlines and there's one thing from Amazon that really caught my attention and I went, holy, holy moly. Holy um, moly. I'm wondering if it's the same thing that caught your attention. What was the one thing that you went, wow, with Amazon's hardware launch? Oh, okay. Uh, as in, wow, this is a nice thing or wow, that's a bit scary. Just wow, whatever. Uh, I would say the redesign on the Echo speakers. Wow, because you really like it. Do you, you like that ball shape? I do. Yeah. So some someone likened it to a grapefruit with the with a, mm. a sort of a, a stand on it, where you've still got the the ring going around. But yeah, they've ditched that silo uh, design in favour of a small grapefruit, and the new Echo is just a smaller uh, grapefruit instead of that that old hockey puck. Uh, design. So what grabbed your attention? Uh, what grabbed my attention was the uh, home security drone. Oh, yeah. Good choice. Yeah. Yeah. Now, just the fact, you know, for, for people who don't know, uh, you know, Amazon are behind the Ring doorbell software. There's so somebody could be ringing your doorbell and you can look at them on their phone, whether you're in the house or whether you're in the Bahamas, whatever. Yeah. Um, so while you're away, taking the Bahamas as an example, um, while you're away, they've now got this ring home security thing and it's a drone and it will literally lift out of its receptacle and fly around your house. Yeah. Yeah. You just program the flight path and it'll do that whenever and then it returns to home base and then it recharges. It's unbelievable that the technology is there to do that. All right. So that's that's the first thing that wows me. All right. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing that wows me is how sci-fi is that? Uh, how sci-fi? How many sci-fi movies have you watched where there's a drone kind of just flying around looking at you going, there he is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you would hope that the security on that is really good because otherwise you'll have people's drones getting hacked and certain people, you know, selling locations mm. on the black market going, the following people are out at the moment. Well, there is all that. Should they only have to look on Facebook? <laughs> well, that's true, yeah. I'm <laughs> hey, going yes, on holidays. Yeah, exactly. I don't know why people do that. Anyways, uh, so the, yeah, the home security drone, that really, I, I mean, that, that, that amazes me and scares me, I think, in equal measure. Um, if they were to give me one for free, I, don't, I, I would definitely play with it and then put it back in the box and send it away again. Yeah, I think that's, that's probably what I'd do as well. Like I'd, I'd get, mm. I'd understand the proof of concept and then I'd be like, okay, that's fine. It's, <laughs> that's enough. That's it, enough. That's but enough. It's not for me. I really like, I really, I, I like your choice with the, uh, the new Echoes because what they've done is, yes, as you say, it's like a grapefruit or a ball, a, a spherical shape. I think it kind of, it looks nice in, especially in all the shots that we've seen, but I'm kind of wondering, I mean, it doesn't fit. Do you know what I mean? It's it's or I, what I mean is it's not a natural fit. 
it's kind of like, you know, if you imagine your kitchen and then you've got like half a football sitting on the counter, do mm. you think, wow, that belongs there? I know exactly <laughs> what you mean. And, you know, uh, with the with the Echo Dot, you could put it pretty much anywhere. It's reasonably unobtrusive. Uh, with the original Echo speaker, it's, it's you know, that silo design, it doesn't have a huge footprint. Mm. So you could put it in a corner or whatever, and it's not going to take mm. up too much room. This is a little bit more, it is more of an object that, that you kind of, Amazon definitely wants you to come into a, a kitchen or, mm. or a room or whatever and go, oh, you've got one of those. Isn't it neat yeah. looking kind of yeah. thing? Because the last... Um, Full-size uh, Echo had, uh, it looked an awful lot like uh, an Ultimate Ears Bluetooth speaker, uh, which are fantastic uh, speakers, I, I hasten to add. But um, yeah, that's kind of what it looked like to me. So this is a very novel design. Uh, it's out on its own, certainly. Um, mm. But would I queue up to buy one? Ugh. Ah, come on, Niall, they're like a hundred quid or something like that. So that, that is no, the thing. I, you're right. I wouldn't queue up, but if I'm on Amazon, it's like it's there. It's like, oh, go on, send me one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> send me yeah. One. I have a feeling that the uh, the the music quality would be much better because, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the Echo Sphere now uh, is in stereo and not mono, as it has been up until now. Yeah, it's it's upgraded there. They've upgraded the sound, all right. Uh, also, did you notice the uh, Echo Show? The, uh, what, what, what's the, um, oh, the other thing that the, the one with the screen, the one with the screen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what the, now there's a couple of, for want of a better word, improvements, uh, made to that. Um, what do you make of them? Well, I think the big improvement really is that the screen will move with you. Yep. Now that also, <laughs> all I can think of is security camera. Yeah, now, I'm sure. I'm sure. You know, when you're used to it and whatever, and I can see the you know application of it, and it's you would get used to it. But right now, it just feels like a security camera. Yeah, yeah. But there, there's a couple of native apps in there that are kind of useful, I suppose, mm. and I guess sort of speak to how people are actually using uh, using their their echoes. Well, there's there mm. there's a good few in there that I found kind of interesting. One of them is is that it's got native uh, Netflix now, which is kind of interesting. I mean, who who watches Netflix in their kitchen while they're making their dinner? I guess some people do. So that's that's yeah, potentially if, useful. If you've got a if you've got a box set or something that you're following. Mm. And it's one of those kind of box sets where you don't like have to just sit down. Mm. And the best way I can describe it is, that, you know, like a, a TV soap opera, like, you know, EastEnders or Coronation Street or whatever. Mm. It's the kind of thing that can be on in the background and you would glance over it and mm. all that kind of luck. Like, yeah, yeah. So I think, I think the Netflix edition is good. Okay. They've also come up with their own native video calling app where you can have up to eight people on a call at the same time and you can have people under groups. So if you decide to call, call the boys, all your mates will come up at the same time. Hmm. Uh, yeah. All right. Okay. <laughs> There's a time and a place for video calls um, uh, and phone calls are fine. Do you know the funny thing about phone calls is that you always catch somebody doing something where they're like, oh, uh, yeah, right. I'm running out to the shops or I'm making dinner or whatever, that kind of a way. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you imagine doing that when, when you're on video as well? Yeah. No such hiding there. No such hiding there. So no, I'm not, I'm not a fan of the. Uh, not a fan uh, of that. Okay. Uh, uh, time and a place. Let's, for let's try a little something else. Uh, I, Amazon do have a habit of doing things that are useful and creepy at the same time as, uh, as we've sort of danced around. Uh, okay. Here, this is their other app that they call Care Hub. And the idea is that it keeps an eye on your relatives, be there, you know, they're, they're really tracing at a sort of, 
you know, maybe you have a few elderly relatives or somebody that you want to keep an eye on uh, discreetly, right? You don't necessarily want to be checking in uh, with them every day, but just sort of, you know, are they up? Are they around? Are they moving? That kind of thing. Um, So so when you say discreetly, is that spelt S-P-Y? Kind of, because the way it works is that it figures out when was the last time Alexa was engaged with. Okay. So, you know. You would say, oh, how is, how is mom doing? And Alexa will say, oh, mom was just checking the radio today. And you go, oh, that's fine. Mom is up and about. Don't need to make a, a big deal of it. This is an advanced version of what people do on WhatsApp. And when they look and they go, hey, they were on WhatsApp an hour ago. Yeah. And they haven't replied to my message. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> Modern society, isn't it? I think the the one little freaky thing, you know, the 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 care thing. Mm, I hate what you say when you when you want to check discreetly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the other kind of the, you know, yes, innovative but a bit creepy with Amazon is their Echo Dot. They've done one for kids that looks like a little cute panda. Yeah, and and it basically is just the the Echo Dot, and it has the cloth covering, but uh, it comes with a one year subscription to their. Kids Plus service, which is sort of curated music and, uh, you know, movies, TV, books, that sort of thing. So I guess, yeah. you know, get them early maybe, but uh, I'd, I'd say that's kind of a useful thing. Yeah, well, I suppose, look, we've had it for years, you know, I'm, I'm going back to uh, little kiddie computers and stuff that we would have had 10, 20 years ago or whatever. Mm. So I suppose, yeah, it makes sense. Interesting, though, um, because I don't think anybody was really expecting much out of Amazon. It was kind of, ah, oh, they're going to do blah, blah, blah. But I've, I have to say hats off to Amazon. They have wowed us. And I think they have impressed you with the sphere. Uh, with the shape and the redesign and the new sound and I reckon better sound and they have impressed impressed me anyway with the home security drone flying yeah. around your home making oh, sure you're in bed asleep. Well, I'm not sure the drone will be available in Ireland just yet because I'm not sure mm. what the availability on their Ring stuff is. But um, always the Amazon stuff is quite competitively priced um, mm. but I don't have exact euro pricing. What what you have to do is order through amazon.co.uk and it'll convert for you at the point of purchase. I know, I know. It's really, really annoying trying to get stuff here um, um, from Amazon. However, if you have got all sorted, because we've got one of those little locker things, so you put an address in Northern Ireland. Ah. And uh, oh, have you not known about these no, things? No, no. Oh my goodness, no. Basically, you sign up for, so I'm not going to plug anybody in particular, but you sign up for this service, all right? Right. And essentially what they do is they will say, okay, you're going to be bloody blah 256 or whatever your number is at, and then they give you an address, I think it's in Newry or something like that, all right? Right. And that's what you put in as the delivery address. Mm-hmm. So when they receive it in Newry, they will know from the start where it says Dusty123 that that is supposed to go to Dublin, to the north side of the city, to the Navan Road, da, 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 whatever. Uh, and it will put it in a locker, uh, which is like, you know, less than five minutes drive from me. And I get a text message to say your package has been delivered. I drop down to the uh, petrol station because it's just at the side of it there. I uh, tap the code in on my phone and one of the doors pops open and there's my Amazon package. So you have spent the UK rate and then it's transported across the border for you. Precisely. So uh, now, now whether that continues after the 31st of December, it'll be interesting because Britain won't be as part of the EU anymore. Anyway, Mm. that's, 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 that's what I do. Anyway, my, my point 
before I digress down that road, uh, was that Amazon, they've got their whatever Black Friday or Super Sale or Prime Day or whatever the heck they call Prime it. Prime Day, right? yeah. I, I, I'm hearing that what they're going to do is they want to get rid of all of the older dots and all the older Echo gear. And what they're doing is they are flogging them off. They're not going to reduce the price of them per se, but they will give you a significant discount if you buy two. Huh. But do you know what I mean? So say say yeah. an Echo Dot is like 50 quid, right? But mm. you can buy two for 70. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? So. And they are, they do, they do make good Christmas presents. Last year I was there oh. shopping in a certain store Perfect. and there was a guy with five of them in front of me. Well, I don't blame. We all, in fact, actually uh, two or three of us kids all had the same idea with the Google uh, side of things for my dad. Mm. Uh, and he absolutely loves it. I've got one upstairs, I've got one downstairs in the living room and one in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> and it's great. I just go RTE lyric and it plays. <laughs> That's like, <laughs> fair play. Listen, there we go. That's all we have uh, time for this week. Now, thanks for keeping us up to date with the Amazon hardware event. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. For every iPod and Google, there's a Newton or a Netscape. And for every Lotus Notes, there's a Microsoft Word. What is the key to creating great tech products that will solve problems and be a pleasure to use? Marty Kagan is founder of Silicon Valley Product Group and has spent more than 35 years looking at the processes behind great products and the reasons why some succeed and many don't. He spoke with Niall Kitson ahead of this year's virtual UXDX conference to share some of his ideas. Marty, I better contextualize this conversation that we're going to have because you are founder of the Silicon Valley Product Group. So tell me a little bit about your work there. Well, sure. Uh, well, first of all, we're very small. Um, there's only five people. We uh, have all known each other for many years, and all of us are senior, former heads of product. And um, I started it quite a few years ago now, um, like 17 years ago. And, and we've just grown since then. It was started really just to share best practices with, with companies I've been working with. Um, I started investing and advising in startups and some of those companies got bigger. And so now it's really startups, growth stage companies. And my partners actually do also some work with large companies. That's mostly when they want to transform. But for the most part, we just try to share best practices. Um, the, the, the real concept that has powered SVPG is just we keep seeing such a big difference between how really strong product companies do product and how most companies do product. And uh, so it's all about closing that gap. And when we talk about product, I mean, your background is in software development and you've worked for the likes of Hewlett-Packard and, uh, and eBay and companies like that. But we're, we're finding that where before there was a very set and specific model for developing software products, you're an advocate for something very different. So can you tell us a little bit about the process that you're interested in and how, how, how it applies not just to software, but to any sort of tech product? Yeah, it's really about tech. Most of the companies, you know, whether it's hardware, software, firmware, devices, we do if the, the real important dynamic is technology because there's a couple dynamics that really play that make it different than say doing a new kind of toothpaste or something like that where the technology is just it's always changing there are every day there's new things that are just now possible and then there's a lot of complexity that comes with technology so you know whether you're doing a medical device or you're doing a gaming system or whether you're doing a travel service the dynamics seem to be important and yeah, like I said, it's not, and I want to be clear, nothing we advocate or I advocate or SVPG, any of the stuff we write about is really our stuff at all. It's just all we're trying to do is, is share what 
the best teams are doing that we're lucky enough to work with. Uh, and, and like I said, we notice such a big difference between how strong companies work and how most companies work. And that's, um, and so it's really just sharing about what they do. Where a little bit of the nuance comes in is in, you know, when you look at companies like Amazon or Apple or Google or Netflix or Etsy or Slack, they all, they're all, by the way, great product companies, but they all have uh, very strong founders and cultures where we kind of have to untangle what's, you, you know, what's particular to the founder from the principle so that other companies could take advantage of that. And in my experience, the principles are consistent across these companies. We do hear an awful lot about the importance of the founder. Perhaps there's almost a, a cult of the founder at the moment. But looking at the role of the founder uh, in, say, the startup world where you or in a company like Netflix, where you're looking at Reed Hastings, who had a very uh, definite vision for the company, or uh, Jeff Bezos, who had a very definite vision. Um, how does that contrast with other companies with sort of what you might call a more entrenched business culture, where the idea almost seems to come by committee? So what, what makes a good committee idea better than a bad founder? idea or is there no such good thing as a good committee idea because i know you you lean very much towards one over the other yes but i do think it's uh, uh the framing you just gave is a classic framing but i really think it misses what is really going on uh if you look at well bezos with amazon or apple even especially apple after steve jobs but even netflix um what those companies are really good at um, are, are they visionary founders? I mean, clearly Steve Jobs was for sure. But what I would argue is these are essentially technology founders. They understand the power of technology, but they, more importantly, they understand the power of people. And I know that sounds sappy a little bit, but that's the difference. If you go to some, you know, big Bank of England, I, I don't know, <laughs> I've never been to the Bank of England, but I've been to a lot of banks. It's like you said, they do these, these things by committee. It's very bureaucratic. Uh, it's all about serving the business. But if you go to any of those great product companies, they are, um, they are really about empowering their people to come up with great products. And, and it's, so even though they might have, oh, I want a 100% touchscreen device, Steve Jobs didn't say how to do that. He didn't know how to do that. But what he was good at was hiring people who were smart enough to figure it out. And giving them the space, that's a famous Netflix, Netflix phrase, giving the teams the space to solve hard problems. That, I think, is the deepest issue, is how they use their people. And if you contrast that with a typical, you know, not very good company, which a lot of them are old, pre-internet, they are, uh, they're mercenaries. Their people are just there to build what somebody, some stakeholder tells them to build. I think a great example of that might be BlackBerry in its, in its later years, uh, if you pardon the expression, where you had uh, the iPhone come out roughly at the same time as the BlackBerry Storm, which uh, had sort of a push screen, not a, not a touch screen. And when the iPhone came out, one of the RIM executives looked to uh, one of his you know, cohorts in the, uh, in the boardroom and went, you can actually do that? You know, that, you know, this is what happens when one part of a business isn't talking to another. And you're a huge advocate of getting engineers into that conversation as soon as possible. Yeah, engineers, this is really, um, this is really, I would argue, the single most imp important element in a strong product company is the role the engineers play. Uh, in, in not very good companies, they're, they're not even often employees. They're often outsourced, right? They're like, we hire a firm and they do it and their engineers are in India or wherever. 
That's not, you won't find that in a strong product company. Their engineers are first-class citizens. By the way, as are designers, first-class citizens. It's, and, and, and because we know in great products, uh, it is very much about what's just now possible. It's combining what the customer's real need is with what's just now possible. And so it really does take three skill sets, the, the product skill set, the design skill set, and the engineering skill set. And so many of the older companies don't understand that. They really don't have that approach at all. And, you know, that, that human element that you're alluding to there, that, you know, that, that accounts for staff, absolutely. But getting close to who you think your user is going to be, not necessarily the pre-generated, you know, industry persona, but doing proper user uh, experience research, uh, it has to come into that mix as well, right? Yeah, I mean, in general, there's two kinds of research that we depend on. Uh, one, the most common and the user researchers aren't crazy about this, but the most common is we've already been given a problem to solve. A typical empowered team, they don't just work on whatever they want. They work on the problems that need to be solved. So for example, if we have a, a service that people don't seem to like and they don't renew every year, that's a problem. That's called churn rate. I mean, you'll go out of business pretty quickly if you don't fix that. Well, okay, the problem we've been given is fix that. And we have lots of ideas and we will test those ideas with our users quickly, with prototypes and uh, evaluative user research. And sometimes we'll also generate new ideas and realize, wow, there's an even bigger opportunity. That's the other kind of user research. But I, I want to be fair. It's not about doing months of research and then giving it to the engineers. That's really not how it works. Uh, the understanding the problem comes pretty quick. Most of our work is in coming up with a solution that actually is something people want to buy. That's where the real hard part is. And that takes design, that takes engineering, that takes product. So uh, a lot of people, are, I think, have an old mindset around, oh, we have to do all this research before we even get started. And what they don't realize is that you really don't start learning until you start testing solutions. And management's, the, a clock starts ticking as soon as you work on a problem. And if you spend too much time on research, you won't have time to actually come up with a solution that works. And, you know, that's hard. That's, that's what it means to be a solution that's valuable, usable, feasible, and viable. That's hard. And we have to discover a solution that works, and we need some real uh, iteration and time for that. Mm, that really sort of uh, affects your, your known unknowns when you go into a project that right. you, you don't know what well, you think you know what you're looking for until you discover a much more interesting problem or a problem you didn't know you were going to have a fix for before you started a, uh, a project. So this ongoing process of discovery, um, how do you sort of um, uh, pitch that to a boss who says, okay, we want to, uh, we want to develop a better phone? Uh, in the case of the iPhone, uh, how do you go, okay, well, look, we won't be doing it today. It'll take us 40, 50 iterations of this thing before we'll have something usable. And you know what? You might have to wait a while before it actually starts making any money for you because there's a, there might be huge, a huge opportunity cost involved. Well, first of all, I always, because the truth is the techniques I'm talking about are generally much faster, not a little bit faster, but much faster. So you, where I often start is we'll talk about, well, how well has the old system been working for you? Okay, it doesn't take that long to get a product out, but then you tell me what, what percentage of the uh, products are actually working, are actually selling. And the, typically the answer is not very well. So then you say, okay, because in product we often, rather than talk about time to market, it's more relevant to talk about time to money. How long until it is doing what it needs to do? And the techniques we talk about in continuous discovery and continuous delivery are all about getting to that time to money a lot faster. The main way we do that is we learn a lot faster. 
So instead of every year shipping a different thing and finding out what works and what doesn't, we can do many iterations per week and we can dramatically condense that time it takes to figure out what we really need to build. Now, the premise there, the fundamental thing is realizing you can't know in advance the answer. You can think you know in advance and a lot of arrogant product leaders think they know what to do, but then when they try building it, they find out it doesn't work. So it it comes with this mindset of saying, well, we can't know in advance what's really going to sell. What we have to do is find out quickly. Uh, one thing that I find to be really interesting, we see this in mobile apps more, more than anywhere else, is sort of this, this almost the, the fallacy of the feature that if you get somebody involved, if you want to avoid that churn, just keep adding features to your, yeah. to your app and they'll seem to solve a problem, but it, seem, but it always seems to fall into this sort of, well, what is it, the, the 80-20 rule that, you know, 20% of your features will, only, will be used by 80% of the people or something. I, I, think, I think that's the that's a stat. So is, is there this feature fallacy where something that's designed to keep people in and, and stop them from churning actually has the opposite effect? Yeah, I mean, feature chasing is a plague in our industry for sure. And it's usually a symptom rather than a cause. What in it, if the product team is really working with customers, with engineers, it's a lot less common of a problem. What often happens, though, is you get all these intermediaries. You get founders, CEOs, stakeholders, salespeople who say, oh, you know, only thing we're missing is this feature. And then they start chasing. And it's a different feature every week because they keep finding that those features aren't doing it. And you're absolutely right that you have to realize that, especially on mobile devices, where it's such a small real estate that every feature competes with every other feature for the user's attention. So it's not necessarily even helping at all if you do that, let alone all the time that's wasted. So uh, yeah, that's, a, that's more of a symptom of that old way of working than the root. So how do you combat that, the, this idea of churn then? How do you manage to maintain that sort of level of product or brand loyalty? Uh, is the root down to, is the root always down to refinement and simplicity? Or is there scope for going, you know what, this, this actually is a killer feature. Maybe, maybe let's just try for six weeks and see what happens and then, and then roll it back. Yeah, well, I mean, so I would argue that the fundamental answer to that is really customer centricity or customer obsession. If you really do care about helping your customers to solve their problems, that's half the battle. Now, most companies give lip service to that. They don't really do that. But if they really do care about that, then, okay, you've got a product team. They have a problem to solve, and they have to solve it in a way that customers really do love, but also works for the business. That's their challenge. And they do that by doing lots of experiments, fast tests. Basically, I don't want to overcomplicate it. When I use the word experiment, sometimes people think of this sort of scientific rigor. All we're talking about is trying out product ideas quickly. Figure out which ones work. When we say work, number one, they actually find value in it. People will buy it or choose to use it. Number two, they can figure out how to use it. Number three, we know how to build it. And number four, that solution also works for our business. It's something we can market, we can sell, we can support. It's legal, it's ethical, it's, um, it supports privacy compliance constraints, things like that. So that's what we're looking for. As soon as we find a solution that does that, we declare victory. We deliver it, we're good. You think some companies have a habit of going off reservation where they, they really nail it with one product and then they, some degree of organizational arrogance kicks in and they might release a couple of lemons based on the, the idea that, you know what, it worked for product X, let's just keep doing it the same way. I, I like to think of Apple maybe in the 90s where you know, they had a couple of successful products and then this sort of corporate mindset kicked in and they figured that you know, the, the Apple formula would, would carry them forward. Are we seeing more of that or, or less of it? Uh, 
it's always been a problem um, in our industry. And it happened to Apple too, but here's my theory for how that happens. And Apple was a great example. Uh, Founders, you, you know, if a founder succeeds and builds an initial product, they usually are doing some things right. I don't see it as the founders generally getting arrogant. What often happens is as the company grows, because you know you got a successful product, you get more money, you get more investors, um, and you grow, a lot of times the company, often it's the board of directors, encourages that company to hire professionals. Uh, these, and often they're proven, you know, the description is proven executives from large companies. And these people have not innovated in decades. And they bring those practices from those terrible companies into the new company. If you look what happened to Apple after Steve Jobs was was sort of kicked out, they went old school. Absolutely. They completely changed. And of course, it worked like we knew it would work. It happens, you know, many other companies. And so I try to... um, you know, it can absolutely scale. Most of the time I find if a company succeeded with one product, if they've got that DNA there, they can do more products. Uh, arrogance can happen, but I think it's a lot less the case than they bring in leaders that change the philosophy of the company. So one last point to raise, we're, of course, we're in the pandemic world now and absolutely everything has changed. So how do you see the process of product development changing? I mean, we, we don't have co-located teams for, for, the, for the foreseeable future. So how do you manage to keep that lightning in a bottle, that sort of everybody in the room, that, that tight collaboration mindset? Yeah, well, it's a super hard problem. That's basically for the last six months, the main thing I've been working with teams on. So the first thing to understand is that there, the, the whole co-location thing, makes a much bigger difference for discovery work than it does for delivery work. So delivery work is our just straightforward. We have to build this. We have to QA test it. We have to deploy it. That works quite well in distributed teams. When people talk about the magic of co-location, Netflix talks about that. Amazon talks about that. When they talk about it, they're really referring to discovery, that sort of real collaboration that we're trying to do to come up with a solution that works. And that is much harder when we're dispersed. It's not impossible. It does take uh, well, first of all, it takes a lot more active coaching from the managers to help people keep those dynamics, those relationships that are so essential. You also have to go way out of your way to schedule things like time to discuss a prototype every day for at least the product manager, product designer, and the tech lead. And uh, that can be hard when people are scattered and have all kinds of you know, personal responsibilities they're trying to juggle. So, um, Another thing that happens is when, when we're not sitting together, we le- lose a lot of that serendipity that's so powerful for collaboration. So we have to go out of our way to make opportunities for this to happen. So there are a number of techniques. I've been writing about some. I've got more I'm writing about that help mitigate the issue. But you know, already I have seen many product teams say they can't wait to open up an office again so that they can get more of this going. Now, I, I don't think anybody's going to try to go back because there are some real advantages to, um, to be honest, in San Francisco, we've been struggling with this issue of uh, co-location all in one place since way before the pandemic because the real estate is so expensive and there's, it's so hard for people to live in the same city that we've been dealing with teams that were spread out uh, in different ways. So we've, we've been struggling with that way before the pandemic. The pandemic has just made that the norm now. 
So everybody's struggling with that. But I do think as, uh, you know, as the world evolves, I don't expect it to, to go back, but I do expect we'll see more of a blend between remote people and more uh, local offices where there is collaboration space that can happen. So I'm pretty confident that will be the future. It will be a mix. And I, and I think that'll get us the best of both worlds because we get the collaboration and we get the talent of people all over the globe. And that was Marty Kagan of Silicon Valley Product Group talking to Niall Kitson. If you'd like to hear more from Marty and a host of other product and user experience professionals, you can sign up to attend this year's virtual UXDX conference from October 6th to 9th at UXDX.com. And we love this and managed to get a discount code from them. Uh, so if you want to make use of the discount code, you'll find it on the tech radio page at techcentral.ie right now. That wraps it up for our show this week. Remember, you can get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more at our website techcentral.ie or listen to us each week online or Fridays on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio Extra. Until next time, for myself, Dusty Rouds and from Niall Kitson, thanks so much for listening and have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by DigitalAudioProductions.com. Tech Central.